you know, sometimes there is far more to people than what you think of them when you first meet them. There are a series of famous TV commercials showing a high-level local basketball game that's happening in a big city neighborhood. And there are crowds of hundreds gathered around the court to watch this game. The skill level of the game is excellent. And suddenly an old man with a limp and gray hair asks if he can join the game. The young players decide to let him play as a favor, not expecting much. Now at first he has the ball stolen from him, and the crowd is shaking their heads. It's, you know, how embarrassing. Why did they even let him play? But then he starts to dribble with skills that they hadn't expected. His shots start to go in. The crowd cheers, so he's not so bad after all. And then he shakes off one player and another player, and he runs through three players and does a reverse layup. Then he starts shooting circus shots that no one else on the court could accomplish. The crowd is going crazy now. The young players are all being humiliated by this old man. Only he's not an old man. He's Kyrie Irving one of the best professional basketball players in the world with a great makeup job and some excellent acting skills. Sometimes people are more than who you think they are. We're going to see in our passage today that even though the disciples and the crowds know that Jesus is someone special sent from God, they haven't yet realized who He really is. Have you? We're in John chapter 6, and we're almost a quarter of the way through John's gospel account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In John chapter 1, John the author has summarized for us the apostles' conclusions about who Jesus really is. So he's writing after knowing Jesus throughout his whole life and seeing Jesus' death and knowing about his resurrection, seeing Jesus after his resurrection even. John tells us in that first chapter that Jesus is literally the eternal creator God who has taken on flesh. He's become a man. He's lived among them. He's died a shameful death and been raised to new life so that sinners like us might be forgiven of our sins and graciously given the eternal life that He has to give if we would only repent of our sins and put our faith in Him. That's really a summary of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even though they knew right away that Jesus had come from God, when they were first introduced to him by John the Baptist, these disciples were only gradually understanding, little by little, throughout his entire life, who he actually was. And it wouldn't be until after his death and resurrection that they actually got it. Jesus was and is God. In chapter 6, we begin to see 
how little they really understood about Jesus, even though they've been with Him so much already. Let me pray, lead us in prayer before we open up God's Word. Let's ask Him to open the eyes of our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we open Your Word, You would open the eyes of our hearts so that we don't just read words on the page, maybe even understand what sentences are saying, but that we have spiritual insight, that we see who Jesus really is, and we understand that if He is Lord and King, if He is truly God in human flesh, that we understand what that means for us and our lives today. Oh, Lord, give us that insight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you turn to the New Testament, which is in the second half of your Bible, and you turn to John and you go to the section that has the big number six, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. We're in chapter six and we're going to be reading one through 21, but I'm going to work through the passage with you in two sections. And the first section is John chapter six, one through 15. Follow along with me as I read. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. There are two points this afternoon in the sermon, and this first point for this first section is this miraculous provision. We see Jesus' rescue 
through miraculous provision. The miracle and the teaching of chapter 5 took place in Jerusalem, but verse 1 of chapter 6 lets us know that Jesus is suddenly doing ministry in the north of Israel, which was called Galilee. It was near the Sea of Galilee, and that's the region where Jesus was from. Time and ministry must have taken place that John doesn't record for us. Immediately, we're told in this passage that he had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which must have been the eastern side because later they traveled back across toward the town of Capernaum on the western side of the sea. The eastern side, you should know, didn't have a big population of Jews, and it wasn't nearly as populated as the western side. It's a lot of open, uninhabited country. Now, there's a large crowd that's followed Jesus there. They've obviously seen Him and heard Him doing ministry on the other side of the lake. And notice why they're following Him at the end of verse 2. Do you see what it says? Because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. It's not His teaching that's drawing them. It's the miracles. The miracles are amazing. The teaching... Eh, we don't really understand it, they probably would tell you. His teaching, on the other hand, it's stirring up trouble rather than drawing a crowd. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man, a crippled man, at a special pool on the Sabbath in Jerusalem, and there the Jews, it said, were wanting to kill Him because He was calling God His Father which means that he's equal with God. He teaches that he gives life, and he judges because the Father has granted that he has life to give in himself, and he has the authority to pass judgment just like the Father. These are stunning claims by Jesus. Now, there's two more details to set the scene in these first four verses. Jesus went up on the mountain with His disciples and He sat down. And second, John tells us curiously that the Passover feast is approaching. Now, the Passover was like National Day for the UAE. Or maybe if you're from the United States like me, it's like the 4th of July. It's like the birth of your country. That's the commemoration that's happening at the Passover. It was a time of patriotic enthusiasm, and it reminded every Israelite of the history of when they became a nation, when God rescued them from Egypt, just like it's recorded in the book of Exodus. Now, Jesus sees this large crowd coming toward them up the slopes, and He asks Philip where they can buy bread so that all these people can eat. Now, we know from verse 10 that there were about 5,000 men in the crowd, which means there could have easily been maybe fifteen to 25,000 people present. What kind of a question is this that Jesus asks Philip? They're in the middle of nowhere, up on the side of a mountain. It seems like an impossible question with no answer. But John tells us what kind of a question it is. If you look there at verse 6, He said this to test him. 
for he himself knew what he would do. This question is a test. Does he know how to answer it? Well, the way he answers, he says even 200 denarii, eight months' wages, is effectively what that would be, wouldn't buy enough for this crowd, says Philip. And then Andrew, another of his disciples, chimes in and he said, look, there's a little boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but that's hardly enough for so many. It's just preposterous that we could feed this crowd. It's impossible, Jesus. Can't you see? Is like what they're saying to him. Have you seen the Adidas billboard on Sheikh Zayed Road? It's a big one, like all the others, of course. It says, impossible is nothing. Impossible is nothing. You know, every time I see it, it it kind of makes me laugh. You know, buying shoes with three stripes on the sides can't make you or I a world-class runner. I hope, to, I, I hope it's not too, but too much of a, a heartbreak to break that to you. And it won't enable you to jump up and dunk a basketball. Now, all the disciples can see is the crowd of thousands and the lack of food. They see the impossible. But they can't yet see or understand who is sitting right there with them. It's Jesus. Now, Philip is a disciple who told his brother Nathaniel back in chapter 1, hey, we've found the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote the one predicted by the Old Testament. And Andrew, his brother Peter, says in that very same chapter, hey, Peter, we found the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, sent from God to rescue his people. But they don't really know, it seems, what he's capable of. They know his name and his titles, but they haven't been listening well to who he says he is who he says he's one with, what authority he's been given. The impossible is possible for the only Son of the Father. And so Jesus shows them what's possible. They seat the crowd on the grass. Jesus prays. He's thanking God for the loaves and for the fish. And then he distributed the bread and the fish and he he fed these thousands upon thousands of people. Can you picture what it might have been like? Each disciple kind of gathers around Jesus maybe one at a time. Maybe they're in single file, I'm not sure. But Jesus hands each of them loaves and fish to carry to parts of the crowd and and then they go out and they distribute it and they come back to Jesus expecting him to be empty-handed but instead he has more bread and fish in his hands still and he keeps handing it out to them and one by one all 12 they're just circulating back and forth to Jesus and back out to this crowd And the bread and the fish, they keep coming, keep multiplying. It's amazing. I mean, surely as they kept taking food out to the crowd and returning to Jesus to take more, they must have realized that they were witnessing a miracle. Maybe it came over them slowly, but surely it came over them. 
And John draws our attention to the overabundance of Jesus' provision for the people. Verse 11, it says He distributed to them as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, everyone at this picnic got full. And no one could eat any more, even though there was more to eat. In fact, they had so much that they left it all on the ground. There was so much more, in fact, that when Jesus told them to gather up the leftovers, there were 12 baskets full of uneaten bread and fish. These would have been large baskets, by the way. Now, verses 15 and 14 and 15 are important verses in order to understand what John is teaching us in recounting this miracle. But first, let's just look at 14. Look there with me. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, not only must the disciples have realized that this was a miracle happening right in front of them, but the people see that this was a miracle, and they conclude that Jesus is the the prophet, the prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 18. This is what it says. God says, through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, I'm going to hold them accountable to what that prophet teaches. They must obey it. The people who said that He was the prophet, they were right. Jesus was the prophet like Moses that God had finally sent into the world. But what was Jesus teaching them through this miracle in addition to that? What is John teaching us as He recounts this sign to us here? First, we see that Jesus' power over the world is unlimited. Truly, to Jesus, impossible is nothing. He can create from a small amount of bread and fish enough to fill a crowd of perhaps 20,000 until they can't eat any more. He supplies an overabundance of what His people need. His provision is overflowing. Jeremiah 31, 14, God says, My people will be filled by My bounty declares the Lord. And that's true for us who trust in Jesus as well. We are filled by His bounty. Look to Jesus for provision in your life. You have a job. Maybe you have some savings. You have family that's helping to take care of you. But it's God who is your provider. Everything that comes to you is from God. The air you breathe is from God. But as amazing as His power demonstrated in this miracle is, there's more to see here. Everything about this miracle points back to Moses leading the Israelites in the desert and God's miraculous provision for them there. The last words of Jesus that John records before He tells about this miracle are about Moses. 
Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe me? It's no mistake then that John tells us about this particular miracle. Then we see that they're on the eastern side of the lake. They're in a place that's similarly empty compared to the wilderness that the Israelites found themselves in with Moses. And it's the time of the Passover, the feast first instituted under the leadership of Moses. And and there are thousands of people here and no stores or places to buy so much bread and meat to feed them just like the Israelites in the wilderness. Exodus 16, which you heard Christina read from earlier, and even Numbers 11, which recounts the same events, they recount how God how the people grumbled about not having bread and meat once they were in the wilderness, and God miraculously provided for them, just as Jesus has done here for them. In the wilderness, Moses asked God, where can I get meat for all these people? And here, Jesus asks the question of Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It's the same question. In the wilderness, God said He would test the people to see if they would obey Him. Jesus is testing His disciples to see if they would recognize Him and trust Him. And indirectly, He's he's testing the crowds as well. God provided sufficient bread-like manna and quail meat, a bird, in the wilderness for all of Israel. And here Jesus is providing bread and fish in abundance and with much left over. There are 12 Israelite tribes to be provided for in the wilderness under Moses' leadership, and Jesus has provided food to fill everyone here in this crowd of thousands with 12 baskets full left over. The imagery that this scene has created before their eyes is, it's not lost on these people here in chapter 6. They knew those stories. They knew the history of their nation. They knew about Moses. They knew about that miraculous feeding. And they made the connection. A miraculous feeding in a wilderness by this man, Jesus, can only mean that he is the prophet like Moses that God had told them about so long ago through Moses. Brothers and sisters, just a a brief application that we must see here is that you and I need to know the Old Testament. Now, you can become a Christian without knowing the Old Testament. You can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just told it to you earlier. You could hear what I told you or read it in the pages of the New Testament and repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. But you need to know the Old Testament in order to understand all the New Testament in its fullness and its depth. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't give up reading the Old Testament. I know sometimes you read it and you think, well, that wasn't very inspiring before you go off into the rest of your day. But it will benefit you if over a lifetime you keep reading it. Keep taking it in. Ask the Lord to give you understanding in His time, and He will. You will see in the pages of the New Testament the very kinds of things that these people saw on that very day. 
the connections with the history of Israel and God's rescuer, Moses. In the desert wilderness, Moses led the people. But it was God, of course, who provided for them. Here, though, it's Jesus Himself, bread and fish from His own hands. Jesus is revealing that He's like Moses, but even greater. God rescued the Israelites in the wilderness through miraculous provision, and now Jesus is demonstrating that He is God's new rescuer sent to provide for His people. But He's come to do more than just provide miraculous meals. He's come to give life. He's been teaching them that. Are they listening? Are you listening? And for that... In order to give life to them, Jesus is going to have to do more than just feed them with bread and fish. His work isn't over because Jesus is going to have to go to the cross to pay for the sins of the people and to be raised to new life by the power of the Spirit. Providing a miraculous meal is amazing, but dying to give us life through faith in Christ will be His greatest provision of rescue. Jesus would go to the cross, which John records for us. He would be nailed to the cross. He didn't deserve it. And He did it willingly in order to take on Himself the wrath of the Father for our sins. He was sinless. But we are all sinful. We've all gone astray. We've all disobeyed God in little and big ways all throughout our lives. And God in His great love and mercy knew the predicament that we are all in. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, into the world, not to judge the world during His life on earth then, but to give life to all who would repent of their sin and trust in Him. This is the greatest provision that Jesus has come to give. This is the greatest food that He's come to provide for us. Later in this chapter, in the coming weeks, you'll hear Him describe even His death on the cross and the sacrifice there as food for our souls. Will they understand it? Do you understand it? It's not time yet for that meal. And look at verse 15, the last verse in this section Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus was becoming popular. (laughs) They recognized that as God's special prophet, he was also a king. They yearned for a king to throw off the oppression of the Romans, to do for them everything they wanted to be done for their nation. But Jesus wasn't a king that they could have control over, not a king that they had the right to crown. It wasn't their crown to give away to him. 
Jesus, the prophet and the king, would only act at his father's direction, not the crowd's. Oh, brothers and sisters, how much we're like them. We often come to Jesus. We say, Jesus, you're king. Jesus, you're Lord. Jesus, you're the prophet. Jesus, you can do anything. But we come to him with our own agenda, don't we? We want Jesus to do for us what we think is best for us. We want Jesus to change this situation or change this circumstance for us, provide for this need, and we want to be the ones to identify the problems and have Him be the problem solver. Now, if these people really believed that He was the prophet, they would have remembered what God said to them about the prophet in Moses' writings. What did Moses say? Listen to him and obey him. But they're not listening. They want him to listen to them. You will be our king, they've decided. Don't misunderstand me. You know God wants to provide for your needs. That teaching is all through the New Testament. He does provide. He does work as we ask in accordance with His character and His purposes in the world. He invites us to ask to meet our needs. But providing for your earthly needs is not God's greatest goal for you. It's not. God's greatest goal for you is to know Him more. God's greatest goal for you is to repent of your sin and trust in the life that He has to give to you, eternal life. God's greatest goal is for you to become more godly, to become a mature person in Christ. That's what God ultimately wants for you. Think think of a need you have right now. As you pray for that need to be met, ask God not only to meet that need or to change that circumstance or to reconcile that relationship, Ask God to teach you more about Himself in the midst of that. To deepen your faith as He either meets that need or He makes you you wait. Either way, He wants to work in you. Think of a trial or a difficult situation you're facing. Look, God knows all about it. And He does invite you to come to Him, to present it to Him, to work in it, to ask Him to work in it. But have you asked him, Lord, what do you want to teach me about yourself in this trial? When you either make me wait or you fix that problem and supply the need, what is it that I can praise you for that I wasn't as fully aware of beforehand as I am now because you've worked in my life? Or maybe you can ask him, Is there anything I need to see in myself, Lord, that you want to teach me in this trial? Is there a sinful tendency that I need to fight against? How do you want to make me more like your son Jesus in what I'm experiencing in life right now? Oh, brothers and sisters, I challenge you to pray that kind of prayer in addition to, Lord, help me right now. Jesus' miraculous provision showed that He 
is the greater Moses and God's rescuer for His people. The miracle meal was simply a sign pointing to His ability to rescue them from their greatest need, a prophet and a king who would die for their sins and rise again to give them life. Jesus would go to Jerusalem later, not to wield the spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear thrust in His side and to bear the judgment that we deserve. The crowd couldn't see it, but could the disciples? They didn't seem to have passed the test on the mountainside, and so Jesus would reveal Himself to be God's rescuer for them through an even more dramatic sign that night. Let's read John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The second point this afternoon is miraculous protection. Rescue through miraculous protection. We saw miraculous provision, and now it's miraculous protection. After the miraculous feeding, Jesus has slipped away farther up the mountain so as not to be crowned king by them. And when evening came, His disciples go down to the shore, they get into a boat, and they begin rowing across the Sea of Galilee, leaving Jesus behind, apparently all at His direction. It was dark, and the sea became rough, and strong winds began to blow, and they were only a little over halfway across the lake, and sudden storms, you should know, can come up suddenly on the Sea of Galilee. They're known to be quite dangerous. It was right at that moment that Jesus appeared in the middle of the sea, walking on the water and getting near to them. And the disciples' response, they're frightened. They're frightened. Who is this that can walk on the water? But immediately Jesus spoke reassuring words to them. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Their fears were calmed, and of course, they took Him into the boat. And the last phrase in verse 21 indicates really what is possibly a third miracle in our passage. It says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. <clears throat> now, whether it's a miracle or simply that Jesus' presence eased their travel and they safely arrived with much less trouble, Jesus' appearance was another demonstration of His power over nature. Again, when we read this, we, we think of Moses and his rescue of Israel through the Red Sea. Do you remember that story in Exodus 14? The Israelites have fled Egypt after the Passover, the plague of the firstborn that God had carried out on the Egyptians. And Pharaoh had originally sent them away out into the wilderness when all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians were struck down, but then he had second thoughts. He said, I'd rather not lose my slave labor. 
And so he mustered his army and he went after the Israelites who were on foot. And it was there at the edge of the Red Sea as the Israelites looked back and feared that they would be wiped out by Pharaoh's army, yet God used Moses to part the Red Sea so that they could pass through unharmed. And when Pharaoh's army tried to pursue them, the waters swept back into place and drowned the Egyptian army. God, through Moses, had rescued them, protected them from certain death. And now we see Jesus not simply parting the waters at God's command like Moses, but walking on the water Himself. You see how knowing the Old Testament helps us see what Jesus is showing them? And there, brothers and sisters, there are so many passages that speak of God's power over the seas and even more specifically of God walking on the water even. Psalm 77, verses 19 and 20, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Or there's Isaiah 11, 15, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. Or there's Job 9 that speaks about God in verse 8 and says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Or Psalm 107, perhaps, which seems like a direct link to what's going on here in verses 29 and 30. It says, He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed and then they were glad that the waters were quiet and He brought them to their desired haven. Jesus' calm greeting to the disciples, though not exactly the same, has a similar feel as the personal announcement that God had made to Moses when He first met him on the mountain in Exodus chapter 3. What did God say there when Moses said, Who will I tell the Israelites has sent me to rescue them? God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. All of this put together puts Jesus in comparison to Moses and tells us more. He is again the greater Moses. He's God's rescuer who not only leads at God's command, He is God Himself. He commands the winds and the waves. He has control over the sea. He can tread upon the waters. The testing of the disciples on the mountainside is, is actually continuing in this passage, isn't it? Will they recognize Jesus for who He really is? In the rest of chapter 6, we're going to see that some refuse to keep following Him while others stay to listen and try to obey. God didn't just test His people when Jesus walked the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, He still tests us today. Will you recognize Him for who He really is in these pages, in these true stories that are recounted to us so that we might repent and trust in Him? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And He has come to rescue us, to rescue us from our sin and conform us to His image every Sunday, in fact, or every day that you open up His Word and read it. It's a sort of a test. He's giving us His Word. We're recounting His promises to one another here as we gather. Will we trust Him as our Lord who rescues us through His miraculous provision and protection in life? Or will we trust in other things, other people, other ways? He gives us His commands when we open His Word. Will we trust Him and obey today, this week? You all know the names and titles of Jesus. Even those of you who maybe are not Christians, you know that we say Jesus is the Son of God. You know that we say Jesus is the Messiah. You know that we say Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord Almighty, the one who Moses wrote about. But will you trust Him for miraculous provision and protection for you? Will you turn to Him, God's promised rescuer, even today? He's the greater, greater Moses. He's God's rescuer sent first to save us from sin and death through His atoning death on the cross and His resurrection from the, from the dead. And secondly... Secondly, for anyone who repents and trusts in Him to preserve us with every provision and protection that we need until that day when He returns and takes us to be with Him into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. That's His promise. Let's turn to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You for sending the promised Rescuer to us, the Lord Jesus. We praise You that He is far, far greater than Moses. He's not the one who just communicates Your commands. He Himself is Lord, and He gives us His commands. Lord, we praise You for the promises that You've made to us through Him and in Him, the promise of eternal life, the promise of provision and protection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.